Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. Good morning and welcome to the first podcast from the Scottish Council on Global Affairs for 2024. And this morning I'm joined by two colleagues to talk about a project they undertook on equity in global health law. And they are Dr. Stephanie Switzer, who is a reader in law at Strathclyde University. Good morning, Stephanie. Hi, John. And Mark Eccleston-Turner, who is the Senior Lecturer in Global Health Law at King's College London. Good morning, Mark. Morning, John. So thank you for joining us. Um, You did a a paper which is also available from, from the Council on the issue of equity in global health law. And I suppose my first question is, What's is this specifically a response to COVID or is this a, de- a movement, an issue that's been developing long before that? Thanks, John. Um, equity is long being recognised as central to the achievement of public health. So this isn't just a COVID issue. Um, it's something which has been around for a long time. You know, without equity, um, whether that's in the provision of health services or medicines, you know, we know that public health outcomes will suffer. But we did see during COVID-19 that equity was in short supply. And we've done a lot of work around that in relation to the provision of vaccines. Uh, so just to give you an example, while some countries such as Canada during COVID-19 secured enough vaccines to vaccinate its entire population three times over. Other countries were very much at the back of the vaccine queue and were unable to secure enough vaccines to inoculate vulnerable individuals and even frontline healthcare staff. And this isn't just a moral issue. You know, it's an issue for global health security. You know, vaccine equity matters to us all. And I think, you know, common refrain within the COVID-19 sphere has been no one is safe until we're all safe. So certainly COVID-19 really brought these issues to the fore, but this is a, you know, equity and, and the lack of equity in, in public health and global public health has been an issue um, more generally uh, going back historically. I'm not sure whether, Mark, you want to say anything more to that because you obviously have done a lot of research in this area as well. Yeah, that's a, a great context. Thanks. Thanks, Steph. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that that we really saw coming off of COVID-19 was an acknowledgement that the the international system for responding to major outbreaks failed quite, quite significantly. Um, the, the response wasn't as good as it should have been. And the response wasn't as equitable as it should have been. So we saw much, you know, much worse outcomes or much worse access to to medical countermeasures, as Steph said, but also access to basic things like PPE, masks, gowns for healthcare workers, gloves, all of those things around the world. And we saw huge inequalities. So <clears throat> quite early on uh, in the in the pandemic, there was an acknowledgement from governments around the world that we need to put in place a better system. And that was the the sort of starting point for the negotiations, which Steph and I um, have been tracking and working on quite a lot, which is the negotiations for a new pandemic treaty. Those negotiations are ongoing at the World Health Organization. And one of the key um, 
tenants or one of the key concepts or themes during these negotiations has been the issue of equity. So it's a, a response to, to the fact that COVID-19 highlighted lots of the inequalities that had been there for a very, very long time and accelerated them and made them uh, made a lot of them much worse than they were. So one of the things this instrument is, is intended to do, this treaty is intended um, to address, is trying to improve equity between high-income countries and low-income countries during the next health emergency or pandemic event. It's, it's interesting because... I guess the, the pandemic for a lot of people was their first understanding or education as to how the world could respond to these things. You know, what role did the WHO or people like that actually have? And is it the case that generally we were found wanting in that or just it was a system that had never really been tested before? Uh, well, the, the system had been tested at, at quite a number of occasions in in the past, maybe not to the scale it was with COVID nineteen, but there have been major outbreaks, uh, in in uh, which had sort of shown the the pres the fault lines or the problems in the in the present system. Some of those were global events like um the the two thousand and nine H one N one outbreak. Some of them were more localized or regionalized, um, such as Ebola in West Africa, Ebola in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Zika in, in, in Brazil and, and, and South and Latin America. So we, we knew there were issues with the, with the present system. We, the, the system hadn't been tested to the, to the scale it was with, with COVID-19. And the, 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 I think one of the, the main flaws or one of the main problems which we saw during COVID-19 is that, that you, know, you, you spoke of WHO there, is that actually WHO, many of the problems which were, which were relevant with the response to COVID were, were not necessarily to do with WHO. It was to do with countries ignoring WHO. Okay, so WHO was saying, ensure there are enough vaccines to go around. We've got the production capacity. If countries don't hoard vaccines, if countries don't don't engage in, in what we call vaccine nationalism, where countries purchase way more vaccine than they require. So the, the example that, that that Steph gave there of, of Canada, they ordered enough vaccine for 11, to immunize every member of their, their country 11 times, which is a huge, which therefore inevitably meant that there were fewer doses for low and middle income countries to purchase. So WHO was trying to address these things, but they actually have very few powers when it comes to making countries do anything really. And that's one of the, the fundamental problems with, with WHO, but also a wider problem with UN bodies is that they're relatively toothless in the face of member states. So WHO was, you know, had very little that they could do other than use rhetoric and appeals to solidarity, appeals to equity to actually encourage countries to, to behave in a, in a more equitable manner. And one thing we saw is that those appeals really fell on deaf ears. Uh, when it came to high-income countries who who engaged in in quite extraordinary levels of of vaccine nationalism, uh, hoarding <clears throat> medical supplies, hoarding vaccines, preventing exports of medical products, and um, to to lower middle-income countries. Um, so one of the the big reveals from COVID nineteen was that actually high-income countries, including our own, uh, behave in highly nationalistic, selfish ways. And that endangers global health security, first of all, and it endangers everyone. Um, and that if we if we need if we want to have a truly equitable system, we need to to 
improve the the, the rules which govern the, the game here or maybe in, in, enhance them. And Steph, I don't know if you want to, to, to come in on that. Yeah, it was just to sort of because I'm conscious that that some people listening won't maybe have much by way of legal knowledge of of the the laws that govern our response internationally, globally to infectious diseases. So um, there is actually a set of international rules that exist under the World Health Organization called International Health Regulations which are meant to govern our response to infectious diseases or other sort of public health events. It could be, you know, a radiation exposure, for instance, uh, which are of international concern. So those were um, enacted in 2005 and they came into force in 2007. They do have a long history that date back to earlier incarnations of sort of international conventions um, dating back to the 1850s, but certainly the most recent um, set of rules and regulations are the international health regulations, which came into force in 2007. And they created this special category of public health event, a public health emergency of international concern that gives the director general of the World Health Organization particular powers uh, to make recommendations, et cetera, to, to state. So Mark um, you know, listed some of the more recent public health events of international concern. International health regulations empower the, the Director General of the World Health Organization um, to make uh, the likes of recommendations um, to member states uh, where there is a public health emergency of international concern. The first Public health emergency of international concern was declared in 2009 uh, with H1N1, which Mark has already discussed. Some of our listeners will remember that it's usually uh, referred to in the press um, and colloquially as a swine flu. And even in terms of the response of the, the, the world to H1N1, um, a subsequent investigation um, commissioned an independent investigation or review of the operation of the international health regulations did find that, that that there could have been a better response. So the issues that came up with COVID, the issues that came up with Ebola um, in West Africa and the DRC, the issues that came up with the response to Zika, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. These are not new issues. Even you know, in two thousand and nine, it was recognised that you know the world's response um, to this public health emergency of international concern and and H one N one swine flu, it could have been a lot worse. You know, we were very lucky um, that it wasn't uh, more. It didn't cause more severe disease. It could have been COVID. In fact, it could have been a lot worse in terms of. Uh, mortality. So we do have this set of rules at uh, the international health regulations, you know, has been recognized that there's been problems with state compliance um, with, under, you know, in respect of recommendations that are made by the director general. Um, Mark's talked about vaccine equity issues with vaccine hoarding, which again, we even saw in, in 2009 um, in respect of H1N1. It has been recognised those problems need fixing. So at the same time, and this is where things become quite complex from an international law perspective, at the same time as there's negotiations which are ongoing to create 
a new pandemic treaty, there's also ongoing negotiations to amend the international health regulations. So you have these two instruments potentially um, going to be um, enacted by the WHO, which will overlap. Hopefully the overlap will be complementary, but there's some concerns that they, you know, they could end up contradicting each other. And there isn't a great deal of transparency in terms of the negotiation process and, and currently what is being discussed. So when you've been talking about those previous examples, I guess to a layman like me, the thing that stands out, at least in my sense, is that COVID hit, for want of a better word, the, the most developed Western world first unlike most of these previous ones. And therefore, if you're talking about equity, that's probably where the the imbalance was first demonstrated, that this became an issue for the biggest, most powerful countries first, who then proceeded to stockpile and take their own very, with a smaller nationalistic type measures towards it. Mm-hmm. I mean, would, would that be a fair assumption? Yeah, that's fairly fair. I mean, the 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 it, 2009 H1N1 had had sort of spread into high income countries, but but most of the other events that have been declared public health emergencies of international concern have have originated in and been largely contained to uh, to low and middle income countries. And this is the first time that we've seen how the you know what what your viewers might might sort of your listeners might call the Western world or high income nations would respond during these kind of global health emergencies. So that it's the first time we've really seen seen what governments like ours do under pressure and in these circumstances, and that's revealed a number of quite significant fault lines in 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 the sort of international system for responding to to pandemic events. So, in terms of of going forward from that, is that in one respect a positive in that you have potentially the more powerful economic nations at the, f- the forefront of wanting to to push forward on this i mean is 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 where does the starting at this point or where we are now what where's what does the consensus look like on any possible treaty the treaty's meant to conclude by may um and certainly we've had this this ongoing negotiation um at the eu was was a particular proponent of of the treaty um it's been very keen in terms of its development i think one of the key issues in terms of the conclusion of the treaty, I think, will be the issue of equity um, and how that's expressed in particular provisions of the treaty, whether that's on technical transfer, whether that's on access and benefit sharing, whenever you come to the sharing of pathogen samples. Um, so I think, you know, even though high income countries have been proponents of the treaty um, and certainly have endorsed it, um, you know, and obviously... It, Obviously, there are these also ongoing negotiations to to amend the international health regulations. I think equity will really be key um, to its successful conclusion. Um, So the next, it's called the INB, the International um, Negotiations Bureau, um, which convenes uh, the treaty negotiations that the next meeting is um, mid-February. So we will get an update um, then in terms of, of how negotiations are going. Yeah, but but consensus is 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 based on the the sort of the the information we we have right now. Consensus is actually quite far away because those those high income nations want very different things out of these negotiations than low income nations uh, or low and middle income nations. So high income nations are 
really concerned about the idea of novel pathogens emerging in the global south and spreading to the global north and, pose, and, and, and posing a threat to their populations that way. So high-income nations are really keen on enhanced surveillance in low- and middle-income countries, detection, early alert systems, um, quicker sharing of information, better sharing of information, so that we know in high-income nations when, what pathogens are emerging in, in low-income settings and what pose risks to us and if, if they're beginning to spread to, to, to high-income countries. That's largely, and they want better compliance and, and better standards. On the other hand, low-income nations are really concerned about equity and are really concerned about access to medical countermeasures, access to vaccines, about the fact of, well, we're not going to just be the canary in the coal mine for you guys. We're not just going to put better surveillance systems in place and tell you what's coming so that you can close your borders, hoard all the vaccines and leave us to, to, to fend for ourselves. So if we're going to improve the system, it's not just going to be about surveillance. It's not just going to be about compliance and standards. Actually, we need to look at the things that went wrong with COVID. We need to look at improving access to medical countermeasures. We need to look at um, you know, vaccine nationalism. And part of that, we need to discuss things like, as Steph said, tech transfer. We need to discuss intellectual property. We need to discuss equity. We need to discuss common but differentiated responsibilities. This idea that high-income nations need to bear a greater cost and a greater uh, a, a greater responsibility for fixing these problems as, you know, incredibly wealthy nations, but also, also Welshans, uh, nations with a colonial history and a history of environmental exploitation, which has contributed to the kind of uh, emergence and spread of pathogens around the world. So actually, both groups want very, very different things. And as Stephanie said, this is meant to be concluded, concluded by May 2024, which is the very unrealistic timescale, which was placed on these negotiations right at the start. So we have a meeting of the World Health Assembly in, in a few months, and the, the treaty is meant to be finalized by then. I think it's fair to say that we don't think that's going to happen. That's an unrealistic timescale to, to work to. Um, but, but in terms of groups meeting in the middle and reaching consensus and reaching agreement on a text that, that, that they can you know, both sign up to, I think it's fair to say that we're we're quite far away from that. Mm. And I think one of the things that we're quite concerned with, not just about what this means for the future of global health, but what does this tell us about the future of multilateralism? If, if we had this huge problem with COVID-19, this global problem, uh, and if we can't get a reasonable plan post-COVID of how we are going to respond to that through the UN system, then it does really challenge the idea of, well, how is the UN system going to respond adequately to climate change? How is it going to respond adequately to, to global insecurity? How is it going to, you know, there are very many challenges facing, um, facing the world right now, and multilateralism is meant to be the solution to those problems. Uh, we, what we're seeing right now is, is a failure to, of multilateralism to deliver a solution that can work for low-income countries as well as high-income countries. And that's quite worrying. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the focus on multilateralism is also interesting from the perspective that a lot of the issues that Mark raised, such as, you know, the relationship between public health and intellectual property, they're not just issues that sit within the likes of the World Health Organization. 
They also um, involve other international bodies, such as the, the World Trade Organization, which has competence in, in sort of international intellectual property, which traditionally hasn't been very receptive um, to waiving intellectual property rights uh, whenever it comes to, to public health emergencies. Um, and we did have a very limited waiver um, agreed during COVID um, in respect of, of vaccines um, under the World Trade Organization, but there were meant to be ongoing negotiations to extend the scope of that waiver, in essence, to make it more effective. And those negotiations have gone nowhere. So even if we have this lovely all singing, all dancing treaty agreed within the World Health Organization, um, we do have these other regimes of international law um, which very much could impede or any future response um, during future pandemics. And I think the idea that we're not going to have another pandemic, I think is, is yeah, it, we are going to have another pandemic. It's, it's if, not when. And I think it, the expectation was the next big pandemic would be flu. And there's a lot of international sort of legal processes designed to prepare for that. Um, you know, and, and I think Mark is is that's his area of expertise is 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 flu pandemics. Um, but I think he would agree that, you know, that is probably going to be the next big one um, and the big test uh, for cooperation here. Um, but as I said, you know, we'll get a better sense whenever the inter intergovernmental negotiation uh, negotiating body. So I think I misreferred to it before uh, whenever the WHO intergovernmental negotiating body meets in mid February 2024 um, to sort of early March 2024 in terms of where negotiations are going for this treaty. But certainly I think we also do need to keep an eye on um, how a lot of these issues that we're discussing um, do play into other regimes, whether it's intellectual property or even biodiversity. Mark mentioned sort of environmental um, issues and, and the, the link between biodiversity loss um, and the sort of human animal interface with, with spreading disease. Um, so even how some of these issues impact the international biodiversity regime, I think, as well, um, will be, you know, conversations that we'll still be having, I think, years from now. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is that we're this 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 negotiation is highly responsive to COVID and what happened in COVID. And, and we're negotiating and preparing for another sort of COVID like event in terms of a, a global pandemic of a communicable disease that can spread from person to person in the way that coronaviruses can or influenza viruses can. But there are there are so many. And part of the problem is this very narrow scope that we've got where we're now we've had a pandemic. So we're going to start planning for how we respond better to pandemics. But there are many other types of challenges to, to health around the world that that fall outside of the scope of this instrument. So some of them are communicable diseases. So like if, 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 on the current reading of the draft of the text, if there's a big Ebola outbreak in 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 the central Africa in central Africa, that falls outside of the scope of the treaty. We're not, it doesn't focus on that. Or if, if Zika begins to spread around, around Latin America, falls outside of the scope. <clears throat> but also there are much wider problems with healthcare and, and health system, right? Like maternal healthcare, non-communicable diseases, poor nutrition, poverty. How many people around the world die because of poverty every year? Never mind who die from communicable diseases. And all of these are so deeply important, but fall totally outside of the scope of the, the treaty that's currently being negotiated, which is really, really narrow. And part of the negotiation is, a, is, is, is a, oh, part of the, the reason for the, the, the tension in the negotiations is that there's acknowledgement by some countries, particularly low and middle income countries, that 
health concerns and health systems are far broader than, than just this narrow idea of pandemics. And we need to look at these broader concerns about health system strengthening and challenges to health system strengthening, to health systems. But there's quite a lot of resistance, largely from high income countries who want a quite narrow instrument because their primary concern is an infectious disease, a communicable disease spreading from a low income country to a high income country and risking their health system. So they're very, they're prioritizing detecting and responding to a narrow set of pandemic-like events in the future, whereas low-income nations want to think much more broadly about what we think of when we're thinking about health. You know, Why are we prioritizing a death from COVID over a death from malnutrition or a death from a, commu a non-communicable disease or a death from, from poverty or, 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 or any of these, these sort of major killers in, in, the, global, uh, in the global south? Um, so there's there's real sort of challenge around the scope of this and the the really really narrow scope of 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 what we're talking about at the moment, which is pathogens with human pandemic potential. It's a very very small set of the number of health concerns we have because we're now only talking about communicable diseases. But pathogens with human pandemic potential is an even narrowing narrower scope. So we're largely talking about a COVID-like event caused by a, you know, caused by a coronavirus, caused by an influenza virus, or, or or whatever virus it may be, but really quite narrow scope and definitions. Um, and we need to fix health systems more broadly. So I guess in in one respect, there's <laughs> there's there's dark and light in this. The the dark is exactly what I suppose many people talk about. Any element of international agreements is that. Getting agreements and implementing them is incredibly hard, especially without a a supranational or intergovernmental body with real teeth to to implement them. And of course, that leaves you open to the possibilities of, I mean, again, small end nationalism, whether it's clinical, legal, medical, whatever. And I'm I'm not naming any names about governments that might choose to take that stance a year from now, say, but it's it's a possibility. But it strikes me that. The process towards this treaty, at least, it's not like a nuclear disarmament treaty where if you fail to agree, you just don't get rid of any warheads. Presumably, at least this dialogue has moved the dial on a whole range of issues, all the ones you've touched on, whether it's intellectual property or sharing or whatever. At least it's, you, you, even if you haven't got to, or, or an agreement by the, later this year looks unlikely, you're not going to backslide to zero, presumably, or am I being too optimistic there? I'm not sure whether or not we've we've sort of um, changed the dial, so to speak. Um, I suppose time will tell, but I, I, I think the waiver discussions that I mentioned on intellectual property within the, the World Trade Organization were so disappointing and the, the end waiver so limited and and the fact that the discussions which were meant to ex, you know extend the waiver really have gone nowhere i'm not sure that we really have changed the dial much in in, in sort of global health cooperation um i think if we miss as, as well i think if we miss the may deadline for conclusion of the treaty i think domestic politics in in other countries may and without naming names um may prevent the adoption, depending on elections that are happening later this year, may prevent the adoption of, of any um, treaty 
uh, if we miss this May deadline. So we may actually be in a worse situation um, next year, but perhaps I'm I'm being too pessimistic and Mark may feel more optimistic than me. No, no, I'm a professional pessimist. So, um, and well, one of the things that we're seeing just to to sort of to demonstrate the point that 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 Stephanie's making is that quite a number of countries are saying no, 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 no. You don't talk about intellectual property at the World Health Organization. That falls totally outside of the scope of what WHO exists to do. If you want to talk about the, about IP, walk down the hill in Geneva and talk to us at the WTO instead. Uh, and they, you know, similar arguments are being made around things like transfer of technology. So it it it's not necessarily that we're we're sort of backsliding. It's that we're simply refusing to talk about those things in a really important forum like WHO, where we saw very clearly during the pandemic, IP was a barrier. Transfer of technology to to establish manufacturing capacity in low income countries was a huge problem, and a huge problem for human health. And what and and in the future, in future pandemics, we need to much more quickly than we did in COVID-19, expand manufacturing capacity and expand it in low and middle income countries where they can make vaccines uh, to a really high quality very promptly. We have to talk about IP. We have to talk about transfer of technology. But there is significant resistance from lots of high income countries being incredibly protectionist over their pharmaceutical industries who are refusing to even include them within the discussions that are going on in Geneva right now. So I'm not sure how much the dial has changed. I think one thing that's that 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 has changed is that low and middle income countries are are, are, are not willing to settle for anything that doesn't look more equitable than, than what presently exists. I think that 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 COVID-19 has really highlighted to everyone just how unfair the system is right now. And, and um, I, I think one of the things that we're seeing is, is a, a unwillingness to settle for, for, for the status quo from lots of low and middle income countries. And that's, that's a source of great sort of hope that these negotiations can, can do something meaningful was one of our one of our concerns when we wrote about it a very long time ago was that the treaty would just restate the status quo and won't be ambitious enough. And I think one thing that we you know we're, we're pretty clear on is that we need to be ambitious in how we we fix the present system. But that that as I said, there's lots of resistance to talking about things like IP transfer of technology, sustainable funding, strengthening health systems, and I I think that those those sorts of those sorts of resistances are are real barriers to meaningful success here. Yeah, and that's that's certainly in it a movement you've seen in other areas where the low and middle income countries or the non-aligned countries, whatever you like to call them, are certainly finding their their voice a little bit more, perhaps through through desire. But I mean it is it is slightly surprising to a bystander that something as profoundly affecting as COVID and you know, even in the United Kingdom, I think we are years from fully understanding the impact it's going to have on on people and systems and the workplace and medicine and everything. It is quite surprising that, that huge global impact hasn't been a sufficient spur for more collective action. But I guess that's just the nature of the the world we live in. I was gonna before I let you let you go, 
I was going to try and bring it crashing back to the domestic side a little bit and just ask about the role, one, of the United Kingdom in this and where do they stand in this argument and what are they for and against in terms of the treaty, but also maybe reflect if there's any element here for the subnational, for the devolved, for the for Scottish interests here. Because after all, as we're seeing at the COVID inquiry right now, Scotland had to have a distinct response to COVID. I mean, there's some things that are that are reserved, some things which aren't, but it's not just as straightforward as a nation state's response to these things anymore. And of course, the fact that that came just after we had left the one, presumably the one multilateral body, multinational body, the EU, where you actually take decisions at an intergovernmental level on these sorts of things rather than purely the national levels. Are there issues there that, that Britain is leading on and are there issues there that Scotland, if you think that Scotland is bringing the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into domestic law and things like that, is this an area where where devolved activity comes to play as well? So so the, the negotiations themselves are are done by sovereign states of the United uh, of the United Nations system and, and therefore the, the negotiation is, is being done by the United Kingdom on behalf of of, of all of the <clears throat> all of the United Kingdom. So the, the role for, for the, the role for, for devolved powers in that is 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 fairly limited. But to go back to that that point that you were making um, in in your question about multi multilateralism, one thing that I think we are seeing is a potential rebuilding or a potential building of regionalism within this. So one of the things that we're we're seeing is is uh, the EU are are quite heavily now involved in in global health matters. And want to kind of put proposals out there for you know uh, an outbreak of regional concern uh, within the EU, not just these these global alerts that that Stephanie outlined earlier. But one potential hope for the future is is enhanced regionalism through the African region. So if you think back to the the answer I gave about the the worries about multilateralism not being able to deliver, one thing we're seeing is quite a, a high level of activity from bodies like the African Union looking at things like pooled procurement strategies on behalf of the AU, uh, 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 regionalised plans for pandemic preparedness and response, and those kinds of of regional issues um, uh, and and, potential for regional manufacturing capacity. So during COVID-19, some manufacturing capacity came online in Stellenbosch uh, in South Africa to, to manufacture one of the mRNA vaccines. Um, so there's a potential that that regionalism and uh, through the African region might be a, a source of, of potential success in in the future, and that feeds into the 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 idea that then they can take a much more sort of holistic approach and a holistic view of 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 addressing communicable diseases or non-communicable diseases that are a pressing concern for Africa, but which aren't a pressing concern for high-income countries. Okay, so if you you know that idea that like Ebola would fall outside of the scope of the pandemic treaty. You know, naturally, the African Union would would bring that within its own scope and say, actually, no, this is a pressing concern for us. Might not be something that the multilateral system is going to address, but we will address it at the at the regional level. Um, so I think that we may see, particularly if we we view the pandemic treaty negotiations as not being um, sufficient or successful, we may see enhanced regionalism, and and we're seeing that particularly through the AU and 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 also the the EU level. But Steph, did you want to to come in on on that? 
No, I think that pretty much summarizes everything. You know, I think that the final thing I'd say is that we might think of these as sort of international issues or we might think of these as sort of regional issues. But I think coming back to that point that we often say within sort of global health circles, you know, if we don't vaccinate, going back to the vaccines example, if we don't vaccinate, you know, all populations, none of us are safe, you know. So I think that is probably quite a nice place to end it. Um, in terms of what we need to do in the future, you know, I think there's a temptation just to sort of protect, you know, domestic populations, but that doesn't make us any safer, I think, in the longer term. I think, as you say, that's a, that's a very good <laughs> message to end on. I shall let you get back to your respective works. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I think we covered a huge amount of ground there. Uh, we'll, we'll, well, thank you for joining us and thank you for the, for the paper that precedes this. And um, good luck with your efforts and we shall keep an eye on the treaties. And, and just to say thank you very much for having us, John, but also just to sort of acknowledge our, our co-authors in particular, um, Abby Rose Hampton, um, who's at King's, and Michelle Roark, who's at Griffiths in Australia, who've been really integral um, to this project and, and to the publications that have came from this project. So also to thank them for, for their wonderful contributions as well. Perfect. Thank you very much. Time to go. So thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Great to speak to you. Huge amount of grand covered. And um, thanks again. Goodbye. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.